Well, good morning, friends. I'm going to do the best that I can to keep the wind from distracting you too badly. It's going to be tough to try to preach like this, but we'll, we'll see. We'll trust the Lord in that. It's good to be together. This is a little bit strange. It's a little different. It's a challenge for all of us, I know, in various ways to try to pull this off. But it's great to see you. And it's really a joy for me to be able to open God's Word this morning in your presence and not be speaking into a phone. Uh, this is really, really good. And the Lord has told us that it's good for us to be together. I trust that many of us feel that this morning, even though it's a little bit different than is, is normal. So let's go to God in prayer, as we always do, for His help, as we're going to open God's Word and ask Him to be with us as we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would be with us now as we look to your word. We pray that you would overcome distractions, even the wind and the sound that it's making in my microphone. You are able to do that. We pray that you would, most importantly, show us the truth of your word. Give us ears to hear it and eyes to see it and hearts that would receive it. We pray that we would see Christ most of all from your word, that we would see ourselves as we are, and that we would see you as you are as our Redeemer and our Savior. We thank you for your goodness and your grace for sunshine, and we thank you most of all for Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Martin Luther said this about the distinction between the law and the gospel in God's word. Quote, distinguishing between the law and the gospel is the highest art in Christendom. One who every person who values the name Christian ought to recognize, know, and possess. Where this is lacking, it is not possible to tell who is a Christian. This much is at stake in this distinction, the distinction between the law and the gospel. Throughout the history of the church, friends, there has been a tendency to collapse categories, to collapse categories of law and gospel and to mix them together. All you need to do is read the New Testament epistles to see that this is the case. It's very clear that this was an issue in the early decades of the church. In the medieval church, the blending of law and gospel was also prevalent. Saints were taught that they must cooperate with the grace of God in order to be saved. Out of the medieval church came sayings such as this, For those who do what lies within, God denies not grace. For those who do what lies within, God denies not grace. And there is confusion, brothers and sisters, in the mixing of law and gospel that occurs even in our context today. Our desire at CBC is to, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, to uphold the law and use it lawfully. And it is also, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, to know nothing among ourselves other than Christ and Him crucified, that we would proclaim and herald the person and work of Jesus in the place of sinners as our whole and only righteousness by faith. When it comes to the gospel accounts, as we find ourselves in the midst of a meditation series called Encounters with Jesus, where we're thinking about the words of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the parables of Christ, this distinction between law and gospel is important because a lot of people assume that if it comes out of the mouth of Christ, it must be gospel. If Jesus said it, it must be gospel. But we have thought before as a church about how many of the things that Jesus says to his audience are in fact law and not gospel. Today's passage is an example of such an interchange. We're going to be considering today from Matthew chapter 19, the account of the rich young man. 
a young man who comes to Christ and asks him a question about what it's going to take to inherit eternal life. And so if you have your Bibles or if you have your Bible app, go ahead and turn those things on or open your Bibles to Matthew 19 and verse 16. Matthew 19 and verse 16. As you are flipping there or finding that text, just a brief word on the context of Matthew 19. In the previous verses to verse 16, in particular verses 13, 14, and 15, we see that Jesus has just told his disciples to let little children come to him. And he tells his disciples also the reason for that. Let little children come unto me because to such belongs the kingdom of God. By that, as we've considered before, Jesus means that the kingdom of God belongs to those who are weak, not strong, belongs to those who are helpless, not able to do things for themselves. It belongs to those who, like children, can only simply receive what they are given. And it's in this context that Jesus is going to speak the words that he does to this young man who comes up to him. Because you see, he has just laid his hands on children and blessed them, and they have departed. And then, verse 16, we look now to God's word and the account of the rich young man. I'm going to read God's word now for us. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty, will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's consider this text together brothers and sisters. Put your eyes back on verse 16. In verse 16, a man comes up to Jesus and asks, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Don't miss that. What, what good work must I do to have eternal life? It's telling of his perspective and his posture. There's more to consider, though. This man is wealthy. We're going to learn that in a few verses, that he has great possessions. It was common in Jesus' day for people to think that wealth 
was a blessing from God in reward for keeping the law. It was a blessing from God for obedience. This is why the disciples later on, just quick interjection here, the disciples are astonished when Jesus says it's hard for a rich person to be saved because in their minds, wealth and possession are God's blessing upon obedience. So how in the world, if an obedient person who's been blessed by God can't enter heaven, how will any of us enter heaven? We'll think about that in a minute. So it was common in Jesus' day to see wealth as reward for keeping the law. This is because God's people in this era would misapply God's national covenant with Israel and the promises that he had made with Israel as a nation, as a personal promise to prosper them for obedience. It's clear, and it becomes even more clear as we go on, that the man approaches Jesus, the young man does, with confidence. With confidence, thinking that he has done well in the sight of God. And he is seeking from Jesus confirmation that he has in fact done well. Verse 17, we see that Jesus begins to respond to him. And as he so often does, he turns the tables. He, he pivots the thing. He starts by saying, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, i.e. me. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. If you want to have eternal life, keep the law. There it is. Do this and you will live. I think we just lost my mic. All right. Um, hang on. We haven't sound checked this. How does that sound? Great. All right. We're going to keep going. Leviticus 18.5, right? Do these things and you'll live by them. Keep the law and you'll live. That's what Christ says to this young man. What Jesus means by keeping the law, brothers and sisters, is going to become increasingly clear in the coming verses. Because what he means by keeping the commandments is not what we usually mean when we think about obedience. In verses 18 and 19, the man asks Jesus, which ones? That is, which commandments do I need to keep, Jesus? And Jesus offers several commandments as representative of the whole law. The young man responds in verse 20 with respect to what Christ has said. And he says, all these I've kept. I've done that. I've kept the law, Jesus. What else do I need to do? And then verses 21 and 22. Christ says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In these verses, Jesus demonstrates that the righteousness of the law is not subjective, but rather it is objective. He demonstrates that the standard is perfection. If you would be perfect, because that's what God requires, you need to do this. He shows the young man in telling him, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. He shows the young man that he had not in fact, kept the heart of the law, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. He is showing that young man, you think you have done it, but you haven't done it. The moment that he asks the man to prove his love for God by giving away all his stuff, the man walks away sorrowful. He does so because he has loved his wealth more than he has loved God. 
and thus he has failed to keep the law that he thought he had kept. This young man, friends, was mistaken all along, thinking that he could be justified in the sight of God through obedience to the law, and Jesus has simply shown him his error. He has shown him that what he has thought is wrong. I say this humbly, but a lot of people, and even, even a lot of pastors, misinterpret this passage. They say that Jesus' point here is that we must be willing to surrender all in order to be saved. I'm sure I have, I'm sure you have, heard this passage preached before, and the message is this. The gospel equals surrender all to Christ and you'll be saved. It's true in one sense. We could be saved by perfect obedience to the law. That's true. Now, that's not what people typically mean when they say that, surrender all. And perfect obedience to the law is not a real path to salvation anyway because it's impossible for us. What people usually mean is that we need to have some kind of subjective willingness to give up everything for Christ and thereby we'll be saved. The problem with that logic, the problem with that interpretation of the text is that giving up everything doesn't do anything to solve the problem of our corrupt nature. Giving up everything doesn't do anything to solve the problem of our sinful nature and the fact that we have broken God's law. It's massively important that we would understand Jesus' actual intent in this text is to show the young man his sin so that he would despair of himself and look to another. Jesus has dumped the full weight of the law on this young man's conscience to crush him and to force him to look outside of himself for his salvation. And the great irony in this passage is that the only one in the entire universe who could save this young man is standing right in front of him. Remember the words of Jesus from verse 17. There is only one who does good, i.e. me. The man has gone away sorrowful. And then in verses 23 and following, Jesus is talking with his disciples. They are wrecked by the interchange. They don't know what to make of this. They're confused. They're distressed. And you can see it in the text as they're talking with Christ. Jesus makes these statements in verses 23 and 24 that it's really hard to enter the kingdom of heaven, especially for rich people. Rich people, like all people, love themselves and they love their stuff and they just have more of it. The disciples are astonished in verse 25. Again, remember, they would have been thinking wealth, possessions. These are rewards from God for keeping the law. Jesus, if obedient people who have been blessed by you with possessions can't enter the kingdom of heaven, how could anybody ever be saved? You can feel their distress. You can sense their desperation. How will any of us make it? Christ's answer in verse 26 is phenomenal. He says to them, with man it's impossible. If it depends on you, you won't be saved. But with God, it's possible. Jesus, who can be saved? No one on their own, but your God is a redeemer. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is news 
about Christ. It's history. It's stuff that happened in time and space that was accomplished. It is news about Jesus and what he has done for sinners. The gospel is not exhortation. The gospel is not encouragement. The gospel is not advice. The gospel actually contains nothing about what you and I should do. The gospel is about what Christ has done for us that we might be reconciled to God. And then underneath that, we have all kinds of great conversations about how we live together in the church and how we live in the world. But if we blend the imperatives and the commandments of the law with the declarative, objective realities of the gospel, we kill the whole thing. Salvation, as McKenzie said when he welcomed us all here, is not something that we earn. It isn't something that we achieve. Salvation is something that we receive by faith in Christ. We receive by faith what Christ has done for us. By faith, his satisfaction for our sin is counted to us. The penalty that we owe for breaking the law, he paid it. The satisfaction of the wrath of God for our sin, he accomplished it. By faith, his perfect righteousness and holiness, perfect obedience to the law is counted to us. So when Christ says, if you would be perfect, which you have to be, we are counted that in Christ by faith. It's as though we've done his good works. It is as though we have never sinned and it is as though we have perfectly kept the law by faith in Christ. That's the gospel. And the Bible tells us that even this faith is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Salvation is completely a gift. It's all of grace from beginning to end. In verse 27, Peter's going to reply to Jesus. He's going to draw to Christ's attention everything that they've left for Christ's sake. Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. What will we have? Jesus responds in verse 28 that the 12 will have a unique position in the new heaven and the new earth. Side note, which is all of grace, by the way. All of grace. There are so many places in the gospel accounts where Jesus makes it very clear to the 12 that it is not that they had chosen him, but rather I have chosen you, he says. Verse 29, Jesus is going to apply it more broadly. Anyone who has left things, people, loved ones, possessions, etc., anybody who has left things for my sake will be blessed and will inherit eternal life. Jesus is no man's debtor. You do count the cost to follow Christ. There are sacrifices that are made to be a Christian. And brothers and sisters, Christ is worth it. Eternal life is worth it. It's good that we would remind one another of that reality. Short-term suffering for long-term gain. It's not that these afflictions in and of themselves really are light and momentary. It's the fact that the glory that's coming is so epic that by comparison they, they are light and momentary. Verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus says this so often, this kind of thing. This salvation thing, this redemption thing, it does not work like we think it would. It's not a merit-based system. God doesn't just save those who crush it. 
who are elite, who are powerful. He saves the lowly and the weak. He doesn't save the worthy. He doesn't save the clean. He is the God, Romans 4, who justifies the ungodly by faith. So as we're concluding our time this morning, what are some takeaways? Just some handles as we're leaving. First thought, just made a list here in my notes. We aren't saved by keeping the law. Rather, we're saved by the one who kept the law for us. That's a big deal. Second, Christ is our whole and only righteousness. This we receive by faith, by casting ourselves completely upon Christ and the mercy of God in Him. So, for you and for me, as we live life in this fallen world, battling our sin, pursuing obedience, striving to love one another well, if we look inward in our own hearts, our own minds, our thoughts, our desires, if we look inward to our own righteousness, that's hopeless. It's, it produces despair. Or if you're deluded, it produces self-righteousness because you think you're killing it. Looking outward to Christ and His righteousness produces not only humility, but it produces rest and peace. Looking inward to our love for Jesus is painfully discomforting. I know, I trust you know, that I have never loved Christ as I should for one moment in my life. I want to, but the reality is I have not. But on the other hand, if we're looking outward to Jesus and his love for us, there is hope and there is comfort and there is security. Another takeaway, we are all debtors to grace. In other words, there is no room for self-righteousness amongst Christ's people. This faith, this salvation that you have, that I have is a gift it is not of our doing, not of our willing, not of our working, that no man may boast, but that the one who boasts may boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Our only boast is Jesus Christ. Horizontal, comparative, subjective righteousness, it won't stand anyway. We do ourselves, or the world no good by parading that stuff around. We herald the righteousness of Christ that is ours by faith. Another takeaway. Because of this, we exhort, encourage, and correct one another with love, charity, and forbearance. Now, forbearance is a word we don't use a lot. It's a great word. We patiently bear with one another in Christ as God has done for us. If you're looking at the headlines right now in our land, you know that forbearance is not something that you see much of. This is one way, brothers and sisters, that the church can be a city on a hill in the world. That we can, imperfectly but really, live with one another 
with grace and charity and forbearance, bearing with one another in love, striving after the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's supernatural. We pray for it, even as we pursue it. Lastly, we live in and under the righteousness of Christ for us as we strive to love God and love neighbor. So, these objective outside of us realities of the gospel, these declarative realities of the gospel, meaning they're done, those things are in no way contradictory to pursuing obedience and righteousness. They actually make the pursuit of righteousness and obedience possible because we have been reconciled to God by faith, because we have peace with God by faith, because we have been counted perfectly righteous and are safe forever. We now, in freedom and love and gratitude and joy, pursue love and obedience to the glory of God and to the good of our brothers and sisters and our neighbor. I'm thankful for accounts like the rich young man where Christ blows up any possibility of earning salvation, where he blows up any possibility of any kind of merit system and makes it quite clear that if it's up to you and me, nobody would be saved. But our God is a redeemer. It's the point of the history of the world is that Christ would come and accomplish the redemption of his people in time and space. You were saved on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and outside a tomb on a Sunday morning when Christ got up from the dead. And it's secure and it's over. Praise be to God. Now, brothers and sisters, it seems appropriate as we've been apart for a while before we go to the table. I want to read this word of blessing for us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that honestly cuts us to pieces by telling us what we are and who we are. And we thank you even more so that in your word you have revealed your salvation. You have revealed that your arm is not short, but long to save. You have revealed the sufficiency of Christ to redeem even wretches like us. We pray that we would live in light of that great news, that we would live from that great news, that we would love each other and that we would love our neighbor and that we would pursue obedience with respect to everything you revealed in your word. Sustain our faith in Christ. Minister to us now as we come to partake of the Lord's Supper, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.